So two of the biggest questions that I think we can ever ask as human beings in life is, who is God and who am I? And I feel like for millennia, people have asked that question. On one side, you've had like great philosophers, the likes of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all the way through to people like Nietzsche, who've wanted to work about the human condition and what it means to be alive. And on the other side, you've had like great theologians, the early church fathers, the Aquinases, all the way through to people like Karl Barth. And they've used their huge brains to wrestle with these massive questions. Maybe more ink has been spent on these questions than any other questions in human history. And even today, if you were to Google, what is the meaning of life? Who is God? Who am I? You will be hit by a raft of answers on Google. I tried it this week. On one side, you get religious answers. You get, you get answers like Eastern religions, Western religions, do it yourself, make it up as you go, religions. And then on the other side, you get these philosophies. You get things like self-actualization and mindfulness, uh, the leisure industry, hobbies, careers, therapies. Like The answers are absolutely endless to the question. But what I think most of these approaches miss on both sides is that they act as if the question of who is God and who am I are totally unrelated to one another, when in fact, they might just be deeply, deeply interconnected. Then in fact, I want to suggest to you this morning that you cannot answer the question, who am I, unless you wrestle deeply with the question, who is God? And the reason for that is very simple, because you and I were not, and are not, biological accidents. We are not cosmic flukes. We were made with designs, with plans, with purpose. We were put here for a reason. And so what I want us to wrestle with this morning is how those two questions relate to one another and through it, how we find out our very true purpose and nature. So we're going to have our reading this morning, which comes from Luke chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles, always helpful to have a vintage. We're going to be starting in verse 18, Luke 9, starting in verse 18. Okay, so once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, why do the, or who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God.
So in the Jewish world, the question of who was God was maybe the biggest question they had. The whole culture, the whole society, relationships, the business world, the civic world, all centered around the Jewish law, the idea of God's priorities, the idea of God's law. But despite that, there was also this sense of brokenness, this sense of absence, that God had gone silent on them for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so there was this like messianic promise that one day God would return. One day his presence would return to them. One day God himself would step into their darkness and bring healing and transformation, bring about a new kingdom on the earth. And so when Jesus is kicking off his earthly ministry, this is the question that people are starting to ask, is he the one? And so one day Jesus, when he's with his followers, he says to them, like, who do people say that I am? And if you notice in verse 19, as Sam read it, they reply, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others still a prophet from long ago come back to life. In a sense, you've got the range there, right? On one side, you're a great moral teacher. You have some good things to say about life and repentance. And on the other side, no, you are actually a prophet, someone who can speak the words of God. But Jesus like, pushes them a bit further. He says, well, okay, but who do you say I am? And if you notice what Jesus says, it's really what Peter then says. He says these profound words, words which hinge all four of the Gospels. You are, Peter says, God's Messiah. You are the one. You are the very one who we have been waiting for our whole lives. You have come to bring your kingdom to bear the ruling, healing power of God, to renovate, to repair, to destroy death, to darkness, to restore the relationship with God and human beings. You have come to bring forgiveness and eternal life. It's the most profound revelation that any human makes in the New Testament. Now maybe Peter's drawing on some things Jesus has said. Maybe he's drawing on these words of Jesus when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Maybe these words, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. For sure, what we do know is that Peter then later goes on after Jesus has died and come back to life to stand in front of thousands of people in the city center of Jerusalem and to say this, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we may be saved. This is an incredible revelation. This is not Jesus, you're a great guy. Not Jesus, you're a good teacher. Not Jesus, you've got some really important things to say that we can remember one day and recount these wise words. This is like, you are God. You are God, the same God who flung the stars into space. The God who creates, who acts, who purposes things to happen, and yet steps in to save, to rescue. And out of his love, invite us, those mere mortal human beings, into his unfolding story. This is Jesus. But let me ask you a question on this hot morning. Like, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Good teacher? Wise sage? Someone a bit irrelevant from long ago? Or maybe, maybe, just maybe God himself? 
Because the implications of this question are absolutely enormous. If you think God is just some nice moral teacher, you can do anything you want with him. But if Jesus is God, then there's some pretty big implications. And of course, like for 2,000 years, theologians have debated this. You know, people with huge brains and usually massive beards who sit in big offices with oak paneling. And they've thought like, well, what does it mean that Jesus is God? How do we like find forgiveness? Is it about a prayer? Is it about faith? Will we go to heaven one day? If we go to get to go to heaven, who gets to go? Do you have to pray the prayer? Do you have to live in a certain way? Like the questions sort of pile up on each other. And people have debated and like denominations have started and people have fallen out and new churches have started and people have fallen out and new things have started and people have fallen out and on and on and on the cycle of going as people have wrestled with these deep questions. Now don't get me wrong, they matter. They matter. Faith in Jesus, which is a personal commitment of ours to him, matters. But it might just be that when Jesus was giving these words, he wasn't trying to spark an intellectual debate. He had something bigger in mind. And we know that because he says it himself. As Peter says, you are the Messiah. Do you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, absolutely. Follow me. Follow me. He says to them, verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Not like, hey, brilliant, you made it, you got it, you figured it out in your mind, now you prayed the prayer, hang on out, heaven's coming. No. Like, actually now, here in the moment, follow me. I don't know if um, any of you guys grew up with this phrase, but I felt like I heard it a lot when I was, when I was a kid. It was about like giving your life to Jesus. Anyone heard that one? Yeah. And, and I felt like when I was growing up, it was always interpreted a bit like, would you like Jesus to be your special friend? You know, like, would you like Jesus to come into your heart so that one day you can go to heaven? That was kind of how I understood it anyway, growing up in Sunday school. The problem with the understanding is that that's a little bit short of what it says. What the phrase correctly says is, is that the moment you give your life to Jesus, you give your life to Jesus, right? Nothing more, nothing less. It is that clear. The invitation Jesus says to those disciples is, follow me. With all you are, with everything that you're about, with your whole lives, with your whole story, come follow me. Now that might seem a bit radical on a hot Sunday morning, like come on Ben, like be realistic. But that's exactly as it would have been understood in Jesus' culture. See, there were rabbis, and the rabbis were like the university educators of their time, the religious educators. But they didn't have classrooms. But instead what they would do is they would invite young adults whoops, to come and follow them. They'd leave behind their friends and their families. And instead they would travel with the rabbi, giving up all that they had to learn from him. Like the original apprentice, basically. The original interns. Saying like, learning not only just the Jewish law and the theology along the way, but learning how to live in a new way. And this is what Jesus is saying. He says, literally, come be my disciple. The word disciple comes from the word discipline. It literally means to learn a new way of life. And the words he uses, he doesn't mess around with. Right? There's a little fast forward to two weeks' time when we'll look at this passage at the end of Luke 9 again. 
But if we fast forward, these people come to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, can we be your disciple? And Jesus is like, sure, you can be my disciple. And then they go, oh, well, actually. And one goes, oh, I've got a business thing, right? I'll come, but I've just got this business thing. I need to do it first. If I could do the business thing first, then I'll follow you. And Jesus goes, no. And then this other guy goes, well, I want to follow you, Jesus, um, but I've got this family thing. I've just got this really big family emergency, and so I will follow you. I promise I'll follow you, but I need to sort this first. And you know what Jesus says? No. No. Why? Because it's enormous, the calling to follow Jesus. It's encompassing to follow Jesus. It's absolutely huge what he means. Now, if you look at the first disciples, though, that's exactly what they did. What, what did they do? They left behind their lives. They left behind their rights. They left behind relationships, their plans, their possessions. They gave everything to follow him. You see, to follow Jesus in the first level is about priority. I know you know this, but you know, all humans live off like implicit priorities. Maybe you know your priorities. Maybe they're just subconscious. But we all kind of have these things which if they're important enough to us, we will make them happen, right? You know, if, if, if you have control and something is a high enough priority in your life, you will make it work, right? Uh, I, somebody gave Laura and I some tickets to Coldplay in the fall. We're going to the Rose Bowl. Anyone else going to the Rose Bowl in the fall to watch Coldplay? Good, we've got it to ourselves. Excellent. <laughs> right, I am going to the Rose Bowl in the fall to watch Coldplay. Doesn't matter what happens, doesn't matter what my schedule says, I will be there unless someone dies. It is a high, high priority. Maybe you have things in your life which sit in that place of priority. Health, family, security, safety, leisure, your favorite sports team, friends, your career, keeping cool on a hot Southern California morning. Like, if something's a high enough priority in our life, we will make it happen. But then at the same time, if we have stuff that's kind of down the bottom, it's a bit kind of like, eh, maybe. Like, a bit FOMO, right? Oh, I might, but yeah, something, sorry. Something came up. The problem is, is that is not how it works with Jesus. When you give your life to Jesus, this is what he invites you to do. He invites you to take your list and put a new category at the top. Said Jesus. And not only does Jesus therefore come at the top of the list, but he also then has the ability to reorder the rest of the list. That he has the authority to take your list and say, well, that one is a really great thing, but that one might not be for your good. And even remove the odd thing from the list, if we'll allow him to. But that is the kind of implication of what Jesus means when he says, come and be my disciple. Now, hey, that seems a bit hard. But let's just remind ourselves who we're talking about here. Right, so I've got a piece of paper here. You won't find many pieces of paper at Vintage, certainly not in my office. But if this, the thickness of this little bit of card represents uh, the distance between here to the sun, that's 92 million miles, represented by the thickness of this piece of card. Right, if that is the distance from here to the sun, then the rest of our solar system would be a stack of card 310 miles high. That's our solar system. Now, as far as we know, our solar system is nothing more than a speck of dust compared to the rest of the universe that scientists can now see. 
And as far as we understand, all of the space that we can see is nothing more than a speck of dust compared to the whole of the creation that God made. God made. God created. God purposed. God breathed. In fact, not just that God breathed it, but as John 1 says, Jesus did it. Jesus was involved in the very creation of time and space and fabric and matter. That's who we're talking about here. But let me ask you, if that is true, if that's Jesus that we're talking about, why do we treat him like our intern? Why do we treat him like our personal assistant? Like he's our apprentice, like he orbits around us. Oh, hey, like Jesus, yeah, sorry, I've been really busy. Um, Don't have time to talk to you today, but if you could just sort the following list of things out that I really need you to sort out today. Like, I need this, I've got to go here, this person needs to get this sorted. Okay, if you could just sort those out, that'd be great, I'll be back tomorrow. Right? It's logical nonsense. (laughs) It's logical nonsense, but that's how we treat God. Instead, Jesus says, follow me. Jesus, the creator of time and space and matter and intellect and love, says, apprentice yourself to me. And is a radically different story to what we sometimes think of in Christianity. We need to reorder our priorities. Maybe even some of us this morning, we know what those are and the things that have got in the way of us giving our life fully to Jesus. But actually, it seems like Jesus is talking about more than logical priority. It feels like he's got a bigger thing going on too. He's talking about the very selves that we are. He's actually talking about what it means to get a new heart, to have your heart melded into a new shape, because we all know we're more than what we do. We are who we are. And we see that in the passage, actually. So verse 24, Jesus says these very hard words. He said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, there's an aspect of that which is obviously physical. The first disciples learned to their cost what it meant to follow Jesus when they were later on imprisoned and had to go through huge challenges. If you ever get a chance to speak to someone who's converted from from Islam in the Middle East to being a Christian, as I got to do recently, you will find out what it means for some people, the cost of following Jesus as they lose family, jobs, safety, community, the whole lot. But the primary meaning of what Jesus is saying here is actually a little bit different. Because the word for life is not the word bios. You know that word, computer bios. Biology, biosphere. Like life, physical beating, heart, blood flowing kind of life. That's not the word. The word that Jesus uses for life here is the word psyche. You know that word. Right? Psychology, psychiatry, it's about the inner self. It's about your core identity of who you are. And when you get that bit, it kind of changes the phrase a bit. What Jesus is saying is, whoever wants to follow me, but hold on to all their old stuff, their values, their dreams, their vision, their goals, their deeper inner longing, whoever wants to hold those two things together won't be able to do it. 
You can't follow Jesus and hold on to all those things. Then if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. So that's why Jesus says you will lose everything if you try that. But instead, notice what he says. If you are prepared to give Jesus your dreams, your goals, your deeper inner longings, to give them to him, all of them, if you're prepared to put them at his feet and say, I want to follow you with all I am, then here's the promise. You will find yourself. You will find yourself. You will find a true self, a real self, a purpose, a calling, an identity. This, Jesus says, is the way to life. He actually calls it a narrow pathway, and you can see why. Now, it's a really different thing to what you often hear in religion. You know, if you come from an Eastern religion background, like Buddhism, you often hear, well, you have to lose yourself into a greater consciousness. The path to enlightenment is to lose yourself. In a Western context, we kind of flip it the other way around, don't we? We're like, it's all about me. It's all about me. God comes to give me the things that I want him to give me. I mean, it's not just a thing we do in Christianity, but I think um, if you were to Google, again, Googling this week, uh, Google how to find yourself. Top results, top six results of how to find yourself according to Google this week. Number one, visualize your ideal lifestyle. Number two, do things on your own, not with other people. Number three, focus on your passions. Number four, be organized. Number five, learn to differentiate between people's support from their opinions. And number six, make a list of things that you love about yourself. Now, hey, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not knocking the list. Um, I think some of those things are probably really good. But you kind of get the picture, right? How do you find yourself? Focus on yourself. Focus on you. It's about me. It's about what I want. It's about what I have a passion for. It's about my dreams. Jesus offers us a radically different solution. Do you have purpose? Do you have a self? Yes, you do. But do you find it by just being totally obsessed about yourself? No. You find it when actually you give over all that you are. You give it away. You give it to Jesus. You say, hey, Jesus, this is who I am. I want you to take the whole lot. And here's what Jesus does. He goes, great, now watch this. I'm going to write a new story. I'm going to write a better story. This is what we're going to call it. We're going to call it your life. I've got adventure for you. I've got plans for you. I've got purpose for you. This is going to look different. Honestly, it's going to look different for you. But it's going to be so, so much better than anything you could have asked or imagined. Now, that's theology, but it's also true. I've been following Jesus for more than 25 years. I can't tell you the number of times I have seen this happen over and over again as I have imperfectly said, Jesus, you can have that. And he said, no worries, don't worry. I've got an upgrade for you. Let's go over here. Jesus has things for every single one of us that are more than we can ask and imagine, but it comes out of surrender and it comes out of discipleship and out of sacrifice. You see, I think, I think so often we're told, aren't we? You, know, you are a nobody unless you get the right things in your life. You're a nobody unless you get an education and a career. Then you can be a somebody. You're a nobody unless you live in the right neighborhood. Then you can be a somebody. You're a nobody if you don't dress right or you don't have the right status or maybe in more traditional cultures, you're a nobody unless you get married and have kids. 
Jesus says, don't worry about being a nobody. I'll make you a somebody. Somebody to me. And you will find life. In fact, Jesus kind of goes further. He said, you can try. You can try and build your life on any of those things if you want to. You can try and build a life on education or career or your house or your dress or your status or your wealth or whatever. But the problem is, is that sooner or later you will discover that those things are unstable. They're just not strong enough. And you'll, you'll hunt and you'll search after them for as long as you can and either you will get them, in which case it will just cost you everything to try and hold on to them so that they won't run away, or you'll never get enough and you'll be disillusioned. But the problem is the same, is that when those things disappear on you, when they flake out on you, when they fail you, if that's the core of your being, if that's your true self, you will fall apart. You will fall apart. I loved what Jim Carrey had to say. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Jesus says, build your house on a rock. Build your truth on who I say you are. Build your life on how I invite you to live. Let me write some better stories and better priorities. Define the truth you have, not from the world, but from my word. And in so doing, you will find a self you cannot lose, a true self, a very self. Now, of course, that's a process. I'm still near the beginning, I reckon. It's a process every day of putting down the lies, of putting down the old self and picking up the new one. It's a process Jesus calls discipleship. It goes on for your whole life. But I do mean it when I say that after 25 years, I reckon I have found a peace a resilience, a health, a security, an identity that I have never would have had without him. When you know that you are loved by the creator of the universe, when you know that he cares for you, that he protects you, that he made you for a purpose, and he has things for you to do and be on the earth, that changes everything, I promise, everything. So if that's a good thing, and I hope I've communicated it as a good thing, you certainly couldn't trade me anything for anything else in the world. How can we start to put that in place in our day to day? Well, obviously, some things about truth, isn't it? Some things about choice, some things about priority. But I think because it actually really goes to the core of our deepest, most intimate parts, it actually has to go beyond even those logical layers, too. I've come to figure in my life that I need to know not only what is wrong and is right, but I need a continual revelation of God's love if I'm going to change. I don't know if you've ever tried to change just from like a negative standpoint. Man, I wish I weighed 20 pounds less. Like, oh man, I wish I worked harder because I don't. You know, if you try and change from that basis, it usually doesn't work. When I was, um, when I was a lot younger, I was playing like um, first, first division soccer in, in the Far East and I loved it, but I was not fit enough and I weighed too much, basically. And I tried really hard, like I was like, I'm gonna lose weight, I'm gonna get fit this year, it's gonna be better. And it never happened, it never happened. Until um, I got an email uh, one week saying, we're inviting you to have professional tryouts in Singapore. Um, I have never run so hard in my life. <laughs> 
Singapore is the hottest place on earth if you've ever been there. It's like sort of this times 10, it's horrible. But I got to the streets of Singapore and I was like, I am every day, four hours a day, I'm gonna run. I'm, I, and I'm not a good runner. I'm gonna run, I'm gonna sweat this out, I'm gonna lose 20 pounds because I was like, why? Because I had this vision. Like I had a vision of what life could look like if I was a professional like, sports person. I was like, I was all about it until I didn't get, the tr didn't get it and then I went back to being fat. But, <laughs> but I guess my point is, if you wanna become more like Christ, if you want to grow as a disciple, if you want to be his intern apprentice, then this is what you need to do. Fix your eyes on him. Get a revelation of who he is. Turn your faith towards him because this is what happens. As you turn your face away from yourself, as you turn your face away from your problems, as you turn your face away from whatever the world tells you you are and you turn it towards Jesus, suddenly you get a vision for what could be in him. You know, back to some planets for a minute. So 93 million miles to the sun from here. And the reason we have life, physical life on our planet, is because we orbit the sun. Once every 365 days, we move all the way around the sun. Because we are at the distance we are, we have enough warmth, we have enough energy, we can have life. If we span off and did our own thing, we would be totally void and desolate and everything would die. That's a choice, that's an orbiting choice. But the reason we really have life is not only that we exist at 93 million miles from the sun, but because once every 24 hours, we turn our faces towards it too. We call it day, in case you're wondering. And it's because we turn towards the sun that we can receive its energy, its nutrients, its life. If it was just dark the whole time, nothing would exist. And it's the same with Jesus. You know, the choice to orbit around his life is a choice. But the choice to turn our faces towards him regularly and intimately is what actually brings the life that we need in every part of our life. You see, as we turn our faces towards him in worship, we get a revelation for who he is. And I don't just mean, you know, like, worship, I like loud songs, I don't like loud songs. You know, worship, I like six verses in my hymns. Worship, I like to sing the same chorus six times. Sing. You know, it's not just about what you sing, it's about a life posture. You see, when we worship, when we put our hands up, what we're actually saying is, God, I surrender to you. God, you are good, and I'm not. God, I want you to be in control. Would you come? Would you come? Would you change me? Would you mold me? Would you shape me? And as we get that revelation, it's amazing that actually some of the junk, some of the mess, some of all the wounds and the pain and the anxieties and the fear start to actually put themselves in their right place. But it's a choice to worship like that. And it's a sacrifice to worship like that. Um, I don't know if any of you ever heard this song when you were growing up. It's an old one now, but I remember it. It has these amazing words. It says, it's all about you, Jesus. And all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. It's not about me. It's if you should do things my way. You alone are God, and I surrender. Anyone ever heard that song? No one. Good. <laughs> Mark has. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Here's the problem. Most of the time when we worship, we kind of turn it the other way around. 
It's all about me, Jesus. All this is for me, for my glory and my fame. It's not about you. It's if I should do things your way. I alone am God. You can surrender. When we worship, we say you and not me. We say I will decrease and you will increase. We ask God for a greater glimpse of his enormity and his power and his beauty and his goodness and love. And in so doing, we catch a vision, a vision for life, a vision for love, a vision for hope. And as we do, our anxieties and fears and pains and egos and pride start to melt away. I love this, uh, another quote from another 1990s famous person. Matthew Perry, Chandler and Friends. He battled with addiction for years and years. But he said this one day in worship. He said, I started to cry. I mean, I really started to cry. That shoulder shaking, kind of uncontrollable weeping. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe. I felt taken care of. Decades of struggling with God and wrestling with life and sadness, all was being washed away like a river of pain gone into oblivion. I'd been in the presence of God and I was certain of it. And this time I prayed for the right thing, help. When we worship, we acknowledge that God is amazing, even though we might be broken. That God is powerful, even though we might be weak. That he is in control and we definitely aren't. That he can heal, even though we cannot. He gives life and we receive it. And so this morning, um, we're going to come to communion in a few minutes' time. It's a moment when we zero in on the most amazing thing God ever did for you, which was to die for you. But before we do, I want to invite you to stand, partly because the fan will blow on you. But also because I'd like us to pray. And it might be this morning that even as you've come, maybe this is the first time you've been to a church. Maybe it's the first time you've been for a long time. And maybe this morning you're in that place where you're like, man, I've tried everything. I've tried to build a career. I've tried to be famous. I've tried to be successful. I've tried to get relationships to work. I've tried all my stuff and it's not worked. And maybe this morning, God's invitation to you would be, come follow me. Come try me. Um, And if that's you in a moment, I'm just going to pray and offer you that opportunity to make that personal decision to follow Jesus and give him your life. But it might also be this morning that for some of us, we've chosen to follow Jesus a long time ago. But actually, if we're really honest, he is very far down our priority list. He's very far down in our choices. He's very far from the center of our lives. And so will you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Because you're so good, God, because you're so loving, because you're so patient with us, it's because you're so gracious to keep welcoming us back. Right now, would you come and move amongst us, we pray. Would you come and move in might and power amongst us?
And so if you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time or for the hundredth time, maybe you want to just echo these words in your heart as I pray them. God, I'm so sorry for trying to live life on my terms. Today, I want to choose to follow you. I give you my life. Have it all. And Lord, would you write a better story, a beautiful story. Amen. I'm just going to pray for all of us as well who recognize this morning that our life is a little bit mixed. Father, thank you for your grace to accept us back even when we are a bit messy. Thank you that you expect far less than perfection from us. Thank you that it's your grace and mercy that sustains our lives. But today, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit to rewrite our priorities? to heal our hearts, to write a better story in our lives, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, today and have your way, we pray. Amen. We're just gonna take a moment, um, and you can sit.